0: The Best of Our Knowledge explores topics on learning, education, and research. Coming up, the theories of 19th century evolutionists Charles Darwin and Herbert Spencer changed how scientists view the world. But one topic that seemed to stump both great thinkers was music. We'll speak with music theorist and author Miriam Pillanin about her book, which lends a fresh eye to old ideas about music and evolution. I'm Lucas Willard, host of The Best of Our Knowledge. You're listening to The Best of Our Knowledge. I'm Lucas Willard. The evolutionary theories of Charles Darwin and Herbert Spencer were revolutionary in how we view the natural world. The two 19th-century writers exchanged letters throughout their lifetimes, and music interested both men and also in some ways eluded them. Music theorist Miriam Pilonen critiques their views and how they're interpreted today in her book Theorizing Music Evolution, Darwin, Spencer, and the Limits of the Human. I spoke with Pilonen, a lecturer at UMass Amherst, about her book and what drove her to study music's place in evolutionary theory. So, when I was a student of music,
1: people were talking about music and evolution quite often. And I started to read about it. I thought it was very interesting. My father's a scientist, he's a physicist. So, I was interested in music and science, very curious about how people were talking about music from a scientific perspective, and then more specifically from an evolutionary perspective. And when I first started reading about it, I was quite skeptical. Not because I was skeptical of evolution, but because I was skeptical of how music was being talked about by these evolutionists. So that's really the start of my interest is I was skeptical of how people were writing about, talking about, theorizing about music from an evolutionary perspective.
0: And so in in your book, Theorizing Music Evolution, you focus on two main evolutionists and thinkers from the 19th century, Herbert Spencer and Charles Darwin. And people today are probably very familiar with Charles Darwin, if not just his name. People are maybe less familiar with Herbert Spencer if they're not a psychologist. So could you perhaps give me a little background about Herbert Spencer and who he was? Nice.
1: Yes, absolutely. Just like you said, Darwin is often the mascot of evolutionary theory, especially in the United States in Western culture. Darwin is the more familiar of the two. As I started to research, and I started with Darwin because he was the big name, I started to discover through my reading and through my studies of 19th century evolutionism, I started to discover just how important Spencer was to this history. And he was important for many reasons. First of all, he was important because he was theorizing about evolution before Darwin. That's not so unusual. There were many, many people theorizing about evolution. And the idea of evolution goes back centuries or even millennia. But Spencer was the big name in 19th century Victorian Britain. Everyone knew Spencer's name. He was publishing a lot. He was estimated to be the first philosopher, the first published author to publish over a million copies of his books during his own lifetime. So uh, I started thinking about like, why is it that we name Darwin instead of Spencer when Spencer was so significant to the discourse in the 19th century? And as I learned more and more about Spencer, I didn't just discover that he was tremendously influential to Darwin on the topic of evolution, but he was also influential to Darwin on the topic of music evolution, and he had what was the more popular of the two. His theory of music was more popular than Darwin's, and they had a bit of a debate, and that's really the center of my book, is the debate between Charles Darwin and Herbert Spencer about the origins and functions of music.
0: And you do follow correspondence between the two throughout their lives, really. Mm -hmm. Um, Where Do Darwin's ideas on music line up with Spencer's ideas on music? Because they did initially in their early writings communicate about music. It wasn't something that they shied away from.
1: Exactly. Yes. Darwin was tremendously influenced by Spencer, and his ideas are often quite similar to Spencer's on the topic of music. And just to give one specific example, Darwin was very influenced by Spencer's idea of reflex action. So for Spencer, what was special about him was he was decentering this godlike view of humanity and how the human species came to be. And in thinking about music, he did not refer to a divine origin for music. Instead, he referred to a material origin for music. So the idea that music isn't coming to our heads from some god or gods, plural, but rather is coming to us through our bodies and through the ways that our uh, species have evolved. So for him, music is a reflex action. It's something that uh, human beings specifically do because of their reflexes. And Darwin found that to be a very convincing and very persuasive idea. So he wrote about reflex action, and he cited Spencer on the topic of music. Now, where they diverge, and I think this is what's really interesting about the two of them, they diverge on how they define music in the first place. So to keep this nice and short, Darwin thinks of music as a very expansive thing and something that not just humans do— but that certain animal species do as well. So for Darwin, the chirps of birds or the squeaks of mice, those are musical expressions. And he theorized about the difference between what he calls a note and a noise. And so for him, music is filled with notes and things that are not musical or that have a different kind of meaning to them. That's noise. Now for Spencer he thinks of music as something that only humans can do. Music is a special, evolved, more progressed version of language. So for him, bird sounds, mouse squeaks, those don't count. That's nature. That's that's animalistic expression. Those are reflex actions of a different kind. Uh, and To to summarize the two, you could think of them as disagreeing about how they define music versus language. So for Darwin, music and language uh, are related because music evolves into language. Spencer thinks of it the opposite. He thinks of uh, language evolving into music. And one more thing about this, I think that if we look at these examples of how these two thinkers think about music evolution we can discover more about how they differed when they thought about what evolution is. So how Darwin thought about music points to an idea of all of nature sort of evolving together, whereas for Spencer, it's a teleological process that has one direction from unevolved to evolved. He's very hierarchical about it. That's why for Spencer, it's easy to think about a phrase like survival of the fittest. Spencer is the one who coined that phrase. So for him, evolution has a direction. It goes forward. It has a telos. It has an end point. It has a goal, which for him is increased complexity. For Darwin, on the other hand, Uh, he doesn't think teleologically about evolution. It's not that things are getting more evolved. It's that we can think about how things change gradually over the course of many generations.
0: In uh, particular to Darwin, you write about how his ideas on music and evolution are rooted in biology and sexuality, Mm -hmm. but also of aesthetics. Yes, And you do a lot of pointing out of who Darwin was a white man in the 19th century in Victorian times, and how that influenced his thinking too. Why did you decide to draw this element of aesthetics and what you perceived of of Darwin's world when he was actually writing these essays?
1: Mm. Well, the short answer is that I think of myself as coming at these questions from the humanistic side. In the, in the academy, we sometimes think about a divide between the sciences and the humanities. I'm trying to bridge that gap. Obviously, this book is a little bit about art, humanistic thought. and It's a little bit about science. But uh, I wanted to get the question from a more humanistic side of things and really question these scientific approaches to music and subject them to humanistic scrutiny. So for that reason, studying Darwin or studying Spencer, it doesn't just mean reading their science and it doesn't just mean looking at their research studies. It means looking at who they were as people and where they were living and what their culture was like And so for Darwin, being situated as he was within Victorian Britain, he was exposed to certain kinds of ideas that affected how he thought about music. Spencer as well. Both of these two were living in the same historical time period and were exposed to many of the same ideas and they came to many of the same conclusions. But they also came to different conclusions. So I think, you know, biography, background, context, they tell a very important part of the story. And there are also contingencies that have to do with these two thinkers' unique personalities, one might say.
0: And you're also not afraid to call out these thinkers at times racist or misogynist. Why do you think it's important to use these labels for these thinkers, which people today may see as, oh, well, I I didn't know he was a bad guy, or, you know, Darwin may not have thought of himself as a a racist or a misogynist at the time. Um, But why use these uh, adjectives to describe these thinkers?
1: Mm. Well, I think misogynist is a very accurate and useful term for thinking about Darwin and and Spencer as well, I focused more on Darwin's view of gender and sexuality in the book because it's so important to his theory of evolution and so important to his theory of music. The way that he thought about music was very closely bound up with his ideas about sexual selection. And sexual selection is a special term that Darwin came up with that he thought of in tandem with natural selection, another important term for him, but not exactly the same. So for Darwin, natural selection means the the creatures that are better fit for their environment tend to survive and flourish, and therefore they pass on their genes. For the concept of sexual selection... He thought about this as having something to do with mating patterns. So like how do different creatures choose their partners and how do they populate? Uh, how do they reproduce? And so thinking about music from this perspective, Darwin theorized that music had some role in ancient mating rituals among um, great apes and or pre-human creatures and also other creatures, mice and birds and such. So he was thinking about concepts of sexuality, gender, and how people connect with each other in order to theorize about music. And this meant that he had a very limited view of what music is and how it functions. And just to give one example of why I think it's quite fair to call him a misogynist. And some people say, like, well, why would you say that about him? He didn't know any better. He was just reflecting the views and cultural ideas of his time. Well, that wasn't entirely true. There were plenty of people thinking about women's rights and about um, opposing Darwin's views about the evolved nature of gender, For example, I spend a good amount of time talking about a very interesting thinker named Antoinette Brown Blackwell. And she was a very interesting and unique American thinker. She was the first woman to be ordained as a Protestant minister in the United States. She was a prominent abolitionist and advocate for women's rights, and even though she was a religious figure. She was very interested in evolution. And she wrote her own theories about evolution, in which she confronted Darwin and Spencer. She saw the two of them as the big names. She confronted Darwin and Spencer over what she saw as their uh, misogynist views about nature. And she tried to theorize her own take on how gender and sexuality might affect or play into or be theorized in relation to
0: evolution. You wrote in the book of Blackwell, she warned readers that thinkers like Darwin and Spencer are now scientifically remanding women to a position of permanent mental inferiority. Mm. And I think that backs up pretty much what you said. But it also points that Darwin's theory, at least, or or Darwin and Spencer, relies on the uh, thought that there is one superior being to another. Yes. There is a dynamic that has existed not only through human history, but in nature as an entirety Mm -hmm. in the development of language and music that there is one group better than another group. Correct. Whether it's male or female, but then also of other cultures too, because uh, you speak about how these thinkers looked at Western music or what they consider high art, classical music of the 19th century versus music from around the world, from Africa, from India from other countries too. There is that polarization that is pervasive throughout their thinking.
1: Exactly. And you see that differently in Spencer than in Darwin. For Spencer, who's very concerned with this progressive view of evolution, where you can track the progress of things according to how complex they are, and complex is in scare quotes here. For him, Western culture, and especially Saxon English culture, was the pinnacle of progress. And for him, theorizing about music meant theorizing the quote-unquote progress of music and determining who was making the most progressive or the most evolved music. And therefore, he advanced these very racist or you might say ethnocentric views about the progress of
0: music, which is, of course, ridiculous. You also write about how other Music theorists have taken these ideas and tried to interpret them in the future. And uh, going back to the same uh, themes, you write about one uh, thinker who, in more recent times, spoke about Jimi Hendrix and the appeal of Jimi Hendrix's music and his sexual appeal and how that applies to these theories. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Absolutely.
1: Yes. So in Chapter 4, I focus on what I call the Darwinian Musical Hypothesis. So Darwin's idea that music has some role in sexual selection. Now, there are many problems with applying sexual selection to human behavior, and many evolutionary biologists have done a great job of explaining why this is problematic to do. But for some reason, since the 2000s, there's been a new wave of people who are sort of separate from evolutionary biology, who are writing about music and evolution afresh, and maybe it's because there isn't a whole lot of oversight over them, because they're not in the evolutionary field. They're in music fields, or they're in humanities fields, or they're sort of crafting their own field. Uh, for whatever reason, there have been a number of new research studies that try to reclaim Darwin's theory of sexual selection in music. So one of these is Jeffrey Miller, who in the year 2000 published uh, very often cited study or or sort of like theoretical article, theoretical chapter about what would it mean for Darwin to be correct? And he uses Jimi Hendrix as one, I think, pretty silly example of how someone with excellent musical prowess might be able to spread their seed, so to speak. And, of course, what he's doing is equating modern-day celebrity culture with the origins of music in order to shore up a sort of mythology of virile masculine artistry that is preordained by biology as an expression of instinct and nature. So uh, there are lots of interesting things about this, but notice in particular how These theoretical accounts of music and evolution often incorporate rhetoric and argumentation to make their points. So I wanted to really closely read these articles, really look at how do they do their studies? Are they looking at archaeological research or are they speculating? Are they studying people and do they have very large populations that they're looking at? Or are they uh, sending out surveys to people on the internet and then using people's preferences to theorize about the origins of music?
0: And I think maybe using the public uh, perception of a celebrity who has been, well, in the early 2000s, who had been dead for uh, almost 40 years is not necessarily hard science (laughs) either. Yes, nice. Um, I want to go back, uh, just back to Spencer. Uh, and what you wrote about Spencer's earworm and uh, when the song gets stuck in your head. And this is something that Spencer spent a lot of time thinking about, and he talks about, you You point out his writings about how to defeat an earworm by listening to other music to <laughs> triumph over the music that's stuck in your own head. But uh, why was that significant to Spencer, and why did he obsess over it?
1: Mm. Okay, well, it's important to remember that Spencer is a kind of armchair philosopher. (laughs) He was not doing archaeological research, and he didn't actually read that much either. He was mostly, you know, attending the salon, talking to other philosophers, and then sitting in his chair and theorizing. So for him, his own experiences are very important to how he thinks about evolution. And he had a love for music. He wasn't a musician. Like, he didn't learn to play instruments. But he loved music. He often wrote about how music uh, helped him feel better if he was feeling nervous. He had many nervous syndromes. He talked about music soothed that for him. And he had many earworms. He often talked about having songs stuck in his head. And one of the things that that made him think was... Why do I have this something that's playing in my head on its own? I'm not controlling it, and I can't stop it, even if I really want to. So what does that mean? And for him, what that meant was something about subjectivity, something about selfhood. Who am I? What do I think? Where do I stop? And my environment begins." And one of the most important things about Spencer's philosophy as a whole is he's very interested in relationships, or what he calls correspondence. And he started to theorize about a subjectivity that was always already in correspondence with the other. So the earworm is the perfect example for him of the porousness of himself, the fact that he's always already interpenetrated with others. And whether those others are ideas, environments, people, books, they're coming in and out constantly. There's a correspondence or a negotiation that's always happening. So that's why the earworm was really interesting to him. It was a kind of I that is not I, a self that's coming from the outside in.
0: In their letters back and forth over their lives, Darwin eventually writes about how he's losing his ear for music or how he's lost his ear for music, and he doesn't really write about music that much anymore, especially in his later years. Um, How did this perception of him losing his sense of music, his ear for music, change about what he thought about the world and change about his own theories of evolution?
1: Mm, I think that... The fact that he claims to have lost his sense for music, it both affected his theory of music and evolution and was affected by his theory of music and evolution because he eventually abandoned his efforts to theorize about music. He wrote to his daughter, Henrietta, you know, midway through his career, I'm writing about music and evolution in my new book, Expression of the Emotions in Man and Animals, but I really have nothing interesting to say. And I fear that I won't, you know, I won't be able to finish or I won't be able to to say anything of interest. And he left the matter ultimately to more musical thinkers like Spencer. And so he gave up on the idea of music and evolution. It was too tricky for him. And another reason why I think it's interesting that people try to reclaim him now is because even he wasn't totally convinced by his theory of music. So for one reason or another, he stopped thinking or writing about music and evolution. And I think that over the course of his life, he, in his mind anyway, created a sharp division between science and art. And he really leaned into the science side of things. That was his specialty. That was where he was getting attention. That was what he was known for, what he was comfortable with. And as he became more and more scientific, he claimed, as these are his words, that his mind became a machine for grinding out facts. And he lost his musical taste and interest. So, And he thought of this as kind of a sad thing. He He missed his youthful exuberance for music and uh, sort of bemoaned the fact that he didn't feel as drawn to it anymore and wished that he could rebuild it or reclaim it. And maybe if he had written one more thing about music and evolution, we would know what the connection there was and what he finally thought about it. But unfortunately, that's really the end of the story for Darwin and, and music. He, he eventually thought of himself as not a
0: musical thinker. What can you tell me about doing this research and writing this book? How did it inform your own thoughts about music? I know that in addition to an author and a lecturer and a music theorist, you're also a musician. Uh, So did going through these letters and this correspondence from the 19th century and researching these ideas and how they are interpreted up into the 21st century, uh, has that informed your own process in creating art? Absolutely, it has. And here's the truth of it.
1: When I first started this work, I was really undecided about what the future of my research career would be. I wasn't sure if this book would be a stepping stone to more studies of music and evolution. Now that I've finished this project, and now that I've written what I wrote in the conclusion especially, I probably will not continue working on music and evolution. I personally do not think that evolutionary science is the right method for theorizing music. It's too distal a theory, and by that I mean it's too big. If you want to define music according to evolution, then you have to have a very narrow definition of what music is. You have to have a testable definition of what music is. I say in the book that evolutionary theories of music are ontologies of music. They are telling us or they involve a process of ontologizing music or deciding what it is. For me, as an artist, maybe not even as a musician, I found that very creatively stultifying, thinking about music as something that must adhere to one or another evolutionary theory. And the conclusion that I came to is that I don't know what the origins of music are. I don't know what the function of music is. I do not yet know what music can be. And for me as an artist, that's much more creatively fulfilling and freeing than adhering to an evolutionary account. So the wonderful thing about finishing this project for me is that I have felt so much more creatively open. And I have felt as a teacher that I'm able to address and invite my students into an environment of learning in which they can question what music is and in which they can discover and help me discover what music might be or not be.
0: Miriam Pilonen is a music theorist and professor at UMass Amherst and the author of Theorizing Music Evolution, Darwin, Spencer, and the Limits of the Human, published by Oxford University Press. This is the best of our knowledge. I'm Lucas Willard. This has been The Best of Our Knowledge, episode 1742. The Best of Our Knowledge is a national production of WAMC, Northeast Public Radio. Thanks to associate producer Jody Cowan. The latest on all national productions programs is available via the Airwaves newsletter and our flagship station's website, wamc.org. Until next time, I'm Lucas Willard.